So I pulled a book off my shelf this past week that I hadn't looked at in years, a book entitled How to Read the Psalms by a friend of mine named Tremper Longman. And he says this in the introduction. The Psalms are a divine human encounter. As we read the Psalms, we are entering into a literary sanctuary, the place where God meets us in a special way and where his people open up to him honestly with their praise and their problems. In the same way that the sanctuaries of the Old Testament, primarily the tabernacle and the temple, were at the physical center of where God's people lived, so too is the book of Psalms in the middle of the Bible. The Psalms as a sanctuary, I just, I love that. I mean, it's, I don't think he knew way back then when he wrote those words that there would be a church in Jupiter called the sanctuary. Um, but what a beautiful picture that is. Uh, a safe house, a, a refuge, a harbor. The Psalms being a place where we can come as we are, not as we should be, and bear our souls to God. Tell the truth about ourselves to God, a place where we can express ourselves honestly to God without fear of rejection. That's what we get when we read the psalm. Psalm after psalm is a heartfelt expression to God about the way life really feels. They give voice to almost every human emotion. As you make your way through the Psalms, they give voice to almost every human emotion. Joy, fear, anger, wonderment, grief, gratitude, desperation, anxiety, love, longing. As you make your way through the Psalms, you find your own soul being laid bare before God. Even though these aren't your words, even though we didn't write these, we find so much deep connection with the authors who did because they're expressing not just themselves, but they're expressing the human condition, the way life actually feels. They give us permission to feel what we're feeling without apology and to channel those feelings Godward, to take those things to God, to feel safe taking those things to God. They give us the okay to cry and to laugh and to yell and to dance and to sing and, and to be still. They give us permission to express ourselves honestly. And while there are many different types of psalms, as I mentioned last week, most fit into three categories. There are 150 psalms. And there are a variety of different psalms, but most psalms fit into one of three categories. Either they are a psalm of praise, a psalm of lament, or a psalm of thanksgiving. Or as I mentioned last week, one, author, one scholar put it this way, that there are psalms of orientation, psalms of disorientation, and psalms of reorientation. That there is literally a song for every season in life, for all seasons. Praise psalms or psalms of orientation keep us emotionally connected to God when things are going well, when life is good, when things are well-ordered and well-oriented, when things seem to be going smoothly. Praise psalms keep us emotionally connected to God during those seasons in life. Lament psalms or psalms of disorientation keep us emotionally connected to God when things are not going well, when life is bad when things seem to be falling apart, when things seem to be unraveling. Lament psalms exist to keep us emotionally connected to God when, when things are disoriented. 
And then Thanksgiving Psalms or Psalms of reorientation keep us emotionally connected to God when things get better again, when things take a turn for the better, when things that were bad are now transitioning back into something that is good, when life becomes well-ordered again and reoriented. So you've got praise psalms and lament psalms and thanksgiving psalms. And this week, I want to look at Psalm 19, which is a a praise psalm. David in this psalm is is praising God. He's, He's praising God for who he is. He's praising God for what God has done. He's giving voice to God's character. He's talking about God and who God is as a creator and who God is as a redeemer. And he's lost in wonder and awe as he expresses his own feelings about God and how amazing God is and all that God has done. Last week, I said that we, we tend to instinctively grasp for recognition. One, one problem that we all have, whether we admit it or not, is that we all instinctively grasp for recognition because we feel more important and we feel more valuable if we're noticed, if people notice us, if they recognize us. So we, we clamor for credit. We crave recognition. We want praise. We want people to know how smart we are, how good we are, how successful we are, how strong we are. We want people to know how nice we are. We, we, we want credit. We want recognition. We want praise. But needing recognition, as you guys know, needing to be noticed, needing praise, to the point where if you don't get it, you feel less valuable, If you don't get recognized, you feel less important, and so you got to get it. Your identity depends on it. Your sense of worth and value and significance depends on being noticed, on being recognized. Well, living that way is a a heavy way to live, as you guys know, because now we're constantly trying to get that stuff and put on a good front so that we get the credit that we long for. It's a terribly heavy way to live. So in this sense... Psalms of praise are liberatingly deflective because it takes the focus off of us and it puts the focus on God. It gives God credit for every good thing. They're liberatingly deflective because they acknowledge that God is God, that we are not, that God gets the credit forever. I don't need to clamor for credit in order to feel stable and valuable. I'm stable and valuable because of who God is and what God has done for me, not because of who I am and what I do for me. And so I don't need credit. I don't need praise. I can deflect praise to God where it ultimately belongs. Um, I was going through some old sermons uh, last night. Uh, real old, like 15 years old, 16 years old. And I came across this story that I, uh, this funny story that I uh, shared way back then. And I was like, I've got to figure out a way to use this, but there's really no place to fit it. And then Stacy came walking in the room about that moment. And I said, listen to this story. Listen how funny this is. And I'm trying to figure out a way to force it into the sermon just to make people laugh, but there's no place to put it. And then she said, no, there is a place to put it. And she told me where to put it. So here it is. This is an illustration of how we typically clamor for credit. We take credit for things we didn't do or whatever. Pedro was driving down the street in a sweat because he had an important meeting and couldn't find a parking place. 
Looking up toward heaven, he said, Lord, take pity on me. If you find me a parking place, I will go to church every Sunday for the rest of my life and give up tequila. Miraculously, miraculously, a parking space appeared. Pedro looked up again and said, never mind, I found one. Okay. Now, stupid story, but it kind of illustrates the point humorously, you know. Um, praise psalms are liberatingly deflective. Because they give God praise. They give God credit. They give God the attention that he deserves. Praise psalms direct our feelings toward God when things are going well and not to someone or something less than God like ourselves. And in doing so, because praise psalms do this, they, they keep us connected to God so that we don't wander off into the land of enslaving pride and unattractive egotism, uh, which we all tend to do. Praise psalms protect us from that. Now, we're not given the context in which Psalm 19 was written, but we are told at the top of the psalm who wrote it. Uh, Bible scholars call that little note at the top of a psalm. Some of you guys may have it in your Bible, and not all psalms have them. Uh, but in this case, Psalm 19 does have it. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David what they call a superscription, where they, the psalm itself identifies the author. Not all psalms identify the author, but some do, and Psalm 19 does. So it doesn't give us the context in which Psalm 19 was written, but we are told that David was the one who wrote it. And in this psalm, David, King David, praises God for making himself known. He praises God for revealing himself to us. Now, that may seem like not that big of a deal. But the more I thought about it yesterday, I thought, that is massive. It is no small thing at all that we don't have to guess at who God is, that we don't have to scratch our heads in, in curiosity and wonder about who God is. God has made himself known to us. He doesn't remain hidden from us. He's unveiled himself to us. He's told us who he is. He's expressed himself to us. Um, it is good news that God shows us who he is. There was a book written in 1972, which was <laughs> an amazing year. Uh, in 1972 by Francis Schaeffer, um, entitled, He is There and He is Not Silent. The title says it all. He is there. He's not silent. Francis Schaeffer was a Christian philosopher and theologian and he wrote a bunch of books, especially early in his career, uh, describing the, the existence of God and how wherever you look, God is there in a very tangible way. We're not left to guess who God is. God is a God who, in fact, created us to know him. St. Augustine famously said, We were made for you, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Pascal, Blaise Pascal, uh, the mathematician and philosopher, said that we, are, we come into this world with a God-shaped void that only God is big enough to fill. We try to fill it with a lot of stuff, a lot of people, a lot of things, uh, but only God is big enough to fill that God-shaped void in our souls. So we're not left to guess who God is. God created us to know him. And in the first six verses, 
David praises God for revealing himself in the world. David looks at creation, and he sees the glory of God. And he's absolutely blown away. First verse, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. He says, I, I, I mean, God's glory is omnipresent. In the Bible, uh, when the Bible speaks of God's glory, it refers to God being weighty. When the Bible speaks of God's glory, it speaks about the augustness of God, which is, a, which is an old word that speaks of God's heaviness, his prevailing excellence on display. The glory of God is what separates God from us. The glory of God tells us that he is God and, and we are not. Um, it's his powerful presence. It's, it's, his, it's his excellence on display for all to see. John Calvin said that the entire world is a theater for the glory of God. The entire world. Where we just sit back as created beings and observe the glory of God's creation. All that has been made reveals God in some way. In some way. And even though this world is broken, some people say, well, yeah, maybe it used to reveal God before we screwed it up. But now, does it reveal God? I mean, this world is a broken, fallen place filled with broken, fallen people. I mean, does it still really reveal God? Well, even though this world is broken, God's reflection can still be detected. Sin, listen here, sin distorts the reflection of God so that it's not perfect, but it doesn't destroy it. And you know that to be true because when you see a sunrise or a sunset or you look out at the ocean or you see something in creation that just mesmerizes you, you see God's fingerprints. I remember um, years ago when I was in graduate school, I uh, rented a townhouse that was next door to a couple, older couple. Uh, his name was Larry. Her name was Sherry. And uh, my two boys were small at the time. And and oftentimes after they went to bed and uh, sort of the night was winding down, we had a back porch and Larry and Sherry had a back porch and there was just a little wooden wall that separated us. And Larry and I would make our way back to the porch at night when everything was settled down and he would smoke usually a pack of cigarettes in about 15 minutes uh, and I would smoke a cigar. And we would just sit back there and talk and Larry knew what I was in graduate school Four, he knew I was studying to become a preacher, um, and he didn't consider himself a person of faith, but he had a lot of questions. So one night, we were just sitting out there. We were good friends, and we were sitting out there, and it was a clear night sky, and you could see every star, it seemed. This is in Orlando. Um, and, uh, and I looked up, and I said, Larry, what do you see? What do you see when you look up? And he was like, I mean, I see stars, I see the night sky. I see the moon. And he said, what do you see? And I remember, like it was yesterday, I was like, I see fingerprints all over the place, man. All over the place. Like, how can you look at this? How can you look at this magnificent piece of art and not at some level go, there's got to be an artist behind this? We would never do that with a picture on the wall that we see, a, a picture that we may like, that we may hang up, and not then assume that an artist created this. It didn't just show up. It didn't just happen to be. Um, 
And so I remember having a conversation with him, and he's like, what do you mean fingerprints? And I'm like, Larry, I mean, look at this. You think this all just sort of happened? I mean, this is perfectly beautiful. It, it tells us something about the fact that there is a creator, a glorious creator, an artist behind all of this. Um, and so even though this, this world is broken, God's reflection can still be detected. The natural order, human creativity, historical events, all of these things reflect God in some way, shape, or form. So in verses 2 and 3, David makes it clear that everything in creation shouts God. His fingerprints are on everything. Everything. Wherever David looks, he sees God. He looks down, he sees God. He looks up, he sees God. Which is why C.S. Lewis said, you, you can ignore the presence of God in this world, but you can't evade it. The world is crowded with him, C.S. Lewis said. And David is absolutely entranced by God's presence in creation. Listen to how Eugene Peterson, who was the author of The Message, which is a paraphrase of the Bible, listen to how he paraphrases these six verses. It's beautiful. God's glory is on tour in the skies. God craft is on exhibit across the horizon. Madam Day holds classes every morning. Professor Knight lectures each evening. Their words aren't heard. Their voices aren't recorded. But their silence fills the earth. Unspoken truth is spoken everywhere. I love that. God makes a huge dome for the sun, a superdome. The morning sun is a new husband leaping from his honeymoon bed. The day-breaking sun is an, athlete, is an athlete racing to the tape. That's how God's wor word vaults across the skies from sunrise to sunset, melting ice, scorching deserts, warming hearts to faith. What a beautiful description of how the, the sky and the earth tell us of God's glory, that his fingerprints are in everything. It is the excellence of God on display in the details of creation that caused David's praise here. He's mesmerized, entranced, swept off of his feet. And there's something really, really relieving about that. I love the ocean. I grew up near the beach and have spent my entire life on the beach. Um, and I've always loved the ocean, always. And as I got older, I started to realize that one of the reasons I love the ocean is because it's so big. And when I look at it, it puts things in perspective. It helps me realize that this whole thing isn't riding on my shoulders. It, it liberates me by reminding me that I'm small. We spend so much of our lives trying to get bigger in a variety of different ways. But real freedom is in the recognition that you're small, that it's not all up to you, that everything's not riding on your shoulders, that your security and your worth and your value and your significance is not dependent on you and what you do. And sometimes looking at the vastness and the beauty of creation is a real helpful reminder to me that that's the case. When I look at the ocean and I see how big, I mean, there is more of our world is underwater than is above water. 
And you go, there are things under the water that the human eye will never see. God created them just so he could look at them. That's it. Job talks about that when when God uh, questions Job and says, okay, listen, you've been questioning me for a long time now. Now you brace yourself like a man and let me question you. Where were you, Job, when when I was telling the lightning where to strike and the thunder where to roll? He says, Job, I, I created things on earth and things in the ocean that no human eye will ever see. I created them so I could look at them for my own delight. I mean, looking at things in creation, beautiful things in creation, sunrises, sunsets, oceans, mountains, uh, the redwoods, which I just saw a couple weeks ago in Northern California. I mean, these these are things that remind us that God is big. And we are small. He, David looks at creation and, and want, in wonder, and he realizes that God is God and, and I'm not. And this relieves him. He was set free by this realization. And so he's praising God for being the creator of all things. But he not only praises God for making himself known in the world, in creation, he also praises God for making himself known in the word or scripture. In verses 7 through 11, David moves from praising God for revealing himself in creation to praising God for revealing himself in redemption. And this is what that means. God unveils himself generally in creation. There are a lot of things that we can learn about God simply by observing creation. We can know that there's an artist out there, that he's got to be pretty big, and he's got to be pretty powerful, that there has got to be someone behind this artistry. And looking at creation tells us generally that there is a God. Um, But God reveals himself specifically. He unveils himself specifically in the Bible. So you could put it like this. Theologians refer to this as God's two books the book of creation, and the book of redemption. Or some say God's general revelation and God's special revelation. God's general revelation is the fact that he reveals himself generally, maybe even generically, in creation. God's special revelation is that God reveals himself specifically and in more detail in the Bible. God reveals himself generally in nature. God reveals himself specifically in Scripture. Creation, in other words, reveals that there is a God. The Bible goes further and reveals who this God is. So you could put it this way. In the book of nature, we learn that there is a creator. But it's in the book of Scripture that we learn that this creator is also our Savior. We don't learn that by looking at creation. We learn that by looking at the Bible. In the book of nature, we learn that there is one who created all things. And in the book of Scripture, we learn that there is a Savior who saves all things. This is what David praises God for in these verses. He praises God for being not only his creator, but also his Savior. Listen to how Eugene Peterson paraphrases these verses. He says, The revelation of God is whole and pulls our lives together. He's talking about the Bible now. The signposts of God are clear and point out the right road. 
the life maps of God are right, showing us the way to joy. The, the directions of God are plain and easy on the eyes. God's promises, God's promise, God's promises are 24 karat gold with a lifetime guarantee. God's word is better than a diamond, better than a diamond set between emeralds. God's word warns us of danger and directs us to hidden treasure. Otherwise, how will we find our way? That's his paraphrase of what David says in verses 7 to 11. See, in, in the Bible, God has not only revealed the way, but more specifically, he's revealed that he is the way. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. I'm not just here to point the way out to you. I am the way. The Bible is the unveiling of God's rescue plan. We oftentimes read the Bible as if it's fundamentally about us. It's about our improvement. It's sort of a, it's sort of a divinely sent self-help manual that if we can read the Bible and gain timeless principles, we can have our best life now. Okay, that's the way we oftentimes think about the Bible, that it's primarily a book that teaches us how to live our lives. But the Bible is not primarily about teaching us how to live our lives. The Bible is primarily the unveiling of God's rescue plan. And as we read the Bible, what we discover is that the central figure in God's plan and the hero of God's story is Jesus. That the Bible tells one story, and it points to one figure. The Old Testament predicts God's rescuer, and the New Testament presents God's rescuer. But from Genesis to Revelation, what we have is the unveiling of God's rescue plan centered around this rescuer that he is sending to clean up the mess that we made. So the focus of the Bible is not our work for God, but God's work for us. The Bible is not fundamentally about us at all. It's fundamentally about Jesus. Jesus is the point of every part of the Bible. He is the climax of every theme from the Bible. And he is the true and better version of every person in the Bible. The Bible, in other words, is the portrait of Jesus. It's a picture of who he is and what he's done. Now, this is worthy of our praise. I mean, Romans 1, in Romans 1, the Apostle Paul talks about how all of creation shouts God. But without a more specific unveiling of our need for this God and what this God has done for us because of our need, we would remain lost in the dark. So it is no small thing that God not only unveils himself and makes himself known in creation, but that he makes himself known so specifically and so personally to you and to me in the Bible. That he tells us who he is and what he's done. He, we find out when we read it who we are. We find out when we read it that despite whatever everybody else around us is saying or whatever the culture is saying, that we are, we're much more fragile than we like to believe we are. We're much more uh, dysfunctional than we like to think we are. We're, we're much more broken and fallen than we like to admit. We find these things out about ourselves when we read the Bible. God diagnoses us. When we read the Bible, he's like a, a flawless physician who tells us the truth about our condition. 
And then he says, but have no fear. Don't worry. I've got the cure of all cures. And you don't have to earn it. You've done nothing to deserve it. It's just my joy to give it to you. It's my joy to deliver it to you. I've got something for you that will set all things right, that will make everything sad come untrue. The Bible is the portrait of Jesus. It's a picture of who he is, what he's done. And just as creation is crowded with God, that his fingerprints are on everything he's made in creation, so the Bible is crowded with Jesus. As Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it, every story whispers his name. Every story. Just as you can ignore the presence of God in creation, but you can't evade it, so you can ignore the presence of God in the Bible, but you can't evade it. He's everywhere. Everywhere. Genesis chapter 3, when God says to Adam and Eve that he will one day send a rescuer to clean up this mess that we made, what he actually said is the seed of the woman will one day come and crush the head of the serpent. Who do you think he's talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He's saying, I'm going to fix this problem. I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to clean up this mess. I'm going to do it. I'm going to send my son to do it. I'm going to send a rescuer to do it, to clean it all up. You made the mess, I'll clean it up. That's his grace, his amazing grace on display, his, his love and his mercy on display. Right at the beginning, right after we, all of us, in Adam and in Eve, decided we wanted to be God for ourselves, God's response to that is, you guys have really blown it, and now everything's going to kind of suck because of it. However, I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to clean up this mess. I'm going to fix it. Well, that's what God promises will happen. And so we, we see Jesus all the way in the beginning of the Bible. We don't have to wait till we get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John before we encounter Jesus. We see him here. We see him in Psalm 19. We see him in Genesis chapter 3. He is our Savior. He is our Rescuer. He is our Deliverer. He is our King. He is our Mighty Fortress. He... He is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. He is the defeater of death and sin and guilt. He is our righteousness. He is our rock. He is our redeemer. He is the friend of sinners, the shepherd of our souls, the brother of the outcast. He is the God of 70 times 7 forgiveness. That's who the Bible reveals him to be. Well, that is worthy of our praise. The fact that we don't have to make our way through the dark on our own, as I looked at last week, Psalm 23, even though, you walk, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, which is a description of life in this world, you are with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You are with me. You feed me. You take care of me. You promise that even though life has its ups and its downs, its good times, its bad times, you've promised that you will never leave me, you will never forsake me, that there's nothing that I could do or fail to do that would ever cause you to abandon me. You're with me. I mean, that is a gift beyond gifts. A gift beyond gifts. 
I mean, I oftentimes think to myself, how in the world do people make it through the treachery of this life and the barrenness of this wilderness that we experience without God? I don't know how to do it. I mean, honestly, if I could come up with a better way where I could be God in the equation, I would do it. Trust me. I don't know how people do it. I don't. I mean, when I look around at not just my life externally and the world, but when I look at my life internally, and I think, is anything ever going to get much better? And God's there to remind me, yes, there is a day when everything sad will become untrue. There is a time coming when everything wrong will be made right. There is a time coming where I will make all things new and that we will work and worship without the interference of sin and fallenness and brokenness. There is real hope, which is worthy of our praise, that this world is not all that there is. We don't just go around once, thank God. I mean, how despairing would it be if we only went around once and this is it? Jim Carrey said years ago, I wish everybody could become really rich and really famous so that they could finally realize it doesn't solve anything. That's just honest. Totally true. So what we discover when we read the Bible is that Jesus is the one. He is the one who meets us in our messiness and promises to see us through.